Hello, Cachimbonas. I'm very excited to be releasing this episode of season five of Radio Cachimbona, which is an abolitionist podcast that is audio archiving the fierce migrant resistance that's happening to state repression in these Arizona borderlands. And as the daughter of Salvadoran immigrants, I also prioritize uplifting Central American voices and histories. And on this episode, this episode was an Arizona-focused episode. I interviewed Ronnie Wallenzer, who's the founder of the Housing Initiative Project of Arizona. And we talked about the housing crisis in Arizona, which, if you'll remember, talked also to Roxy Valenzuela about this a few episodes ago. We discussed how the eviction moratorium actually played out on the ground here in Arizona, and Ronnie shared her eviction story and then also breaks down what a tenant union is and what rent strikes are and criticizes the complete lack of due process for Arizonans who are facing eviction. So this is a super important episode, particularly during these holiday times. And so I hope that you all enjoy. If you want to support Radio Cachimbona, you can follow and share your thoughts about the episodes at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Another way to gain visibility is to leave ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which is a new thing that you can do. And also, you can become a patron. Thank you so much to the newest patrons, um, Annalise Ortiz, Christina Leal, and Veronica Fernandez-Diaz. I appreciate you all so much, and thank you so much for joining the patron community. Um, If you'd also like to join, you'll get early access to episodes. This was an episode that the patron that I released to the patrons in October. You also get exclusive access to the lit reviews and the whole back catalog of past lit reviews where I discuss some of my favorite books with fierce women of color in book club style chats that are meant to be fun and informal, but also getting to the deeper issues that the books touch on. There's something for everyone in the lit review. I really think you'll enjoy it. So you can go to patreon.com slash to become a patron. And yeah, I think that's it. I hope that you all have an amazing end of the year and stay safe and healthy. And I love you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy. Today, I am so excited to have Ronnie, the founder of the Housing Initiative Project of Arizona, to talk about eviction housing in the state of Arizona. 
Uh, first, before we get into it, I just wanted to say, Ronnie, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and ask how you're doing today. Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here and t- chatting with you. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> Uh, we were just chatting about how you are a listener of Radio Cachimbona, so I appreciate that so much. And yeah, I feel like Selena right now when she's like, I'm so <laughs> excited. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cute. <laughs> um, okay, let's get into it. So you founded the Housing Initiative Project. What motivated you to start this? And what is your personal story regarding housing and eviction? Yeah, basically. So for the first time ever in my life, I faced um, housing insecurity, like so many of us, right, coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And this is kind of silly, but it was really because my homegirl who was renting in the house behind me, I was living in the Coronado neighborhood in a two bedroom house that that had a house behind it, a little like casita type thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really, really close with my girlfriend that lived in that back house. And it was like February 2020. And she was working in hospitality at the time and, you know, was basically furloughed right away. And I was just really angry because our landlord basically gave her no options and was like, okay, well, what you can do is we can mutually dissolve your lease with no penalty to you, which like sounds great, but like, where was she supposed to live? (laughs) Like she Mm -hmm. now doesn't have a job. Yeah. Um, She's really lucky. She was able to move in with her partner at the time, but like, I was just mad for my friend. And then fast forward a little bit, you know, COVID really, we started to feel the effects into like March and spring. And I actually lost my job. I was working as a nanny at the time. My sister wanted to move back to California and I was basically faced with Mm -hmm. the same options. And at the time there was supposedly a, a eviction moratorium in place. So I just like really, you know, took my time Um, reading it and trying to research the laws. And I was just, you know, watching rent strikes on Instagram and across the country. And really, yeah, like was just like, there's why, you know, how do we get that going in Phoenix? Mm -hmm. And I I just spent like four months kind of withholding my rent intentionally from my landlord. And kind of, you know, I'm a Latinx uh, femme, but I would say that with I have a very white sounding Mm -hmm. last name, it's Wallenser. Um, So on paper, you know, I get a lot of secondhand white privilege. I feel really comfortable navigating like the judicial systems. Mm -hmm. So I just kind Mm -hmm. of recognized that I had, yeah, like these secondhand white privileges that was Mm -hmm. like my responsibility to use. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, so the very first time, you know, my landlord was like, okay, you're going to have to you're basically these are your options. I was like, no, I was able to prove that. I had a, I was considered high risk because I have asthma. And then also that I had lost my job and like significant loss of income. I think there was four different requirements that meant that would Mm -hmm. meant you would be covered under this fake moratorium. And I had two of the four. So basically it was just me dealing with constables coming out to my house. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I say like secondhand white privilege. Cause like, think about mm-hmm. mixed status families. Do you think that they'd be able to yeah. hang around and wait for the constable to come? No. Are there instances of the constable 
collaborating with ICE and Border Patrol? Yes. So actually, totally. And then at one point, the very first time the constable came out to my house, I was living with a white male at the time. And I was like, go answer the door. But she totally rolled up to our house with her hand on the her gun, like oh ready to be super aggro with me. The constable has a gun. Yes, yes. Just in case, wow. you know, they have to protect themselves from the very dangerous people they're about to remove violently from their homes, right? Like, yeah. so wild. And my landlord was, like, standing behind the constable. But it was, like, this whole situation where I had to have the white dude negotiate my credibility before I was able to explain, no, 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 I've given documentation to this Mm. landlord, blah, blah, blah. Um, So now we're into like June 2020 on the timeline of things. Um, I'm battling this landlord in court um, because he's started the eviction process with me. And I got like the judge Mm -hmm. to rule in my favor, actually, because I appealed the unlawful decision that she made to evict me from my home because I had had all these, you know, documentation that qualified you for the eviction work. But it was like expensive to it was like, yeah. And but it was like I spent hundreds of dollars on Mm. all the like printing I had to do for these documents and copies I had to make and to go down to the city to the courts to file them and it was like $300 to appeal the unlawful decision it was it's not accessible like justice is not accessible for everyone and so basically yeah so the judge ruled in my favor and said okay you need to come up with a timeline that would bring you current to your rent and like the landlord Mm. cannot kick you out you have to be able to at least fulfill your the remainder of your lease. So the next time we met in court, I, you know, I came prepared with my like schedule and all these things. And he just had it moved to another justice court. So it was like a completely different judge that was in his pocket who ruled in the Mm -hmm. landlord's favor. And at this point, I just like was financially tapped out. I couldn't afford to, you know, to keep battling this guy in court. And he obviously could. It was really unfortunate because in the in the process of all of this, I had done a little bit of research and gone through the the county recorder's office. So you can look up who owns a property. Like if you click your address, it'll show you who's the property owner on that parcel. And then you can click their name and it will show you all of the addresses and properties that are also owned by like that same LLC or business or individual person. So I was working really hard to form a tenants union among, among his, mm-hmm. his other tenants. tenants, but unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately I don't speak Spanish fluently. And a lot of the properties were in South Phoenix mm-hmm. and I, people were just, you know, on a timeline and he was using that to his advantage of people not having another option and just, just having to, you know, make, find a home for themselves, you know? Right. So, yeah, so eviction, um, the eviction happened. And actually, the second time the constable, I got a letter basically saying that this ruling had happened, and that it was like two days later that the the constable would be coming out. So I'm involved with a lot of community organizing groups in the Phoenix metro area. And so I was just, I had a plan to like, maybe get media involved and bring some attention Mm -hmm. and then Maybe they wouldn't like kick us out. And then the night before, a lawyer friend that was in a mutual aid group 
just kind of really sat me down and was like, mm-hmm. that's not going to work. What's going to happen is this, mm. he's going to come with the police and everything that is in your house is going mm. to be like probably seized and then used to pay back rent. And mm-hmm. he's like, we need mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. everything we can mm-hmm. now to safely get you out of this space. So literally the night before I just texted into like signal in my text messages and was just like, Hey, you know, I have a like two bedroom house at the time. Like if you can, I'm going to be up like 5am tomorrow until whenever I guess the constable gets here. Um, if you could come help me pack, I'd really appreciate it. And at like 5am, sure enough, my neighbors and friends and incredible comrades I have like 30 people came out helped me pack up my stuff. It was incredible. It oh was goodness. a really powerful wow. day. Some media came out. Mm-hmm. Two of my friends acted as police liaisons so that I didn't even have to, so that I minimally had to interact with the constable and did not have to interact with my landlord at all that day, which was really, really nice. And then kind of just after all of that settled, I just really thought about like how powerful community is and just like I how much I wish everybody had my friends and my neighbors and the vecinos that I have that look out for me and like watched out for would text me and be like there was a cop in front of your house you know what I mean like just that level of community care like what the world would look like if everybody had access to that and a mutual aid network and Mm -hmm. and just really kind of thought about that and thought about how they're there isn't anything like that. And so I kept thinking about this idea and kind of sitting on it. And then I met some really incredible friends of mine named Will and Cece, who were just like, we don't think you're crazy. We really do need to build uh, tenant unions and, and tenant power in Arizona. And that's yeah. the only way because we're, we outnumber the property owners and, mm-hmm. and we deserve safe housing and you know, we we're here to help. And I, they just came at just the right time. Mm-hmm. And a really dear comrade of mine, Brianna Westbrook, to help me form HIP. And then um, our sister organization, which is worried about rent, mm-hmm. WAR is the acronym. And um, like, because tenant organizing is mm-hmm. just a small piece mm-hmm. of housing violence, right? Like, it's just a, it's so deep. It's so multifaceted. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. There's quality. It's quality of life, really. That's that issue. Totally. Like housing is a human mm-hmm. right, and like on the hierarchy of needs, yeah. I, I, like shelter is one of the the first. Uh, Pretty basic yeah, ones. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's how hip got started, um, and that was just basically out of the out of, out of the pandemic and realizing that like there isn't anyone to help. Like even the rent assistance programs that exist, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you need to have Wi-Fi, you need to have a laptop, you need to be able to print things, you need to right. be able to mail things. Um, you, mm-hmm. it's also not realistic because when people need rent help, they usually need it now. They don't need it three months later when the office finally gets back to them. Mm-hmm. Or, so there's just really not any systems yeah there's truly no help. Like aside from like GoFundMe's and your neighbors helping you, there's no, no help for people facing housing insecurity. Oh my goodness. There's like 10 issues that I wanted to talk to when you were saying that, but I didn't want to interrupt. That was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> the, the first thing that I thought about is how what happened to you in court is a miscarriage of justice 
and reminds me of how one potential salve to this is having everybody, every tenant have the right to a eviction defense lawyer. My, yeah, my friend Matt Garcia, who is based in Texas and San Antonio, worked to create that in San Antonio. And I think it's still in the process of being rolled out, but every person who's facing eviction will have a lawyer to defend them because it's like in, in your case, it's kind of like a, to me, open and shut case of you're qualifying for the eviction moratorium and you should have been put on that, on that payment plan, as you say, as had, as the initial judge had suggested. And Mm -hmm. landlords, because of the imbalance of power frequently and all you know landlords also frequently hire their own sharky lawyers i don't know if the landlord did that to you yes oh they did okay yeah and through my own research i was able to see that it all came back to this one like law firm based in the valley and like what is it what is it called yeah it's wild it this it's called hull holiday mm day and holiday um and later on as worried about rent really got its footing we created this eviction map Mm. where we were able to to see which districts were coming like had the highest numbers of eviction and stuff um and in our research i'd love to see that and share that on the post notes yeah that would be so great Mm -hmm. it's it's wildly the data is it's insane and it comes out of this one court it's the arcadia justice court or arcadia biltmore court which like at the time i did not even live in arcadia it's so corrupt the way they move cases to be under certain judges that will rule a certain way like you're talking about that are in cahoots with yeah those are lawyer tricks it's exactly. just so deep. That's why you need to have your own lawyer that knows the lawyer tricks. Exactly. Yeah, that that <laughs> yeah. knows how to play the game because it's truly just mm-hmm. a game. But once mm-hmm. we know all the rules, mm-hmm. we can play to our advantage. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and so then you mentioned a rent strike and a tenants union. Can you define those for folks? And what is the relationship between sure. them? Um, a rent strike is basically when a complex or a group of housing that shares the same mm-hmm. landlord or slumlord withholds their rent, usually with like mm-hmm. a, li- a petition of demands or yeah, a list of demands that, you know, usually it's just like, make these repairs, seeming, seemingly right. obvious things, you know, <laughs> air conditioning that works, replace our windows, yeah. um, and that they will mm-hmm. not pay their mm-hmm. rent, because that's honestly the only way to get their attention is when you mess with their money. Rent strikes are really hard, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it puts people in a vulnerable position. Uh, because then yes, the landlord could begin the eviction process against you. And unfortunately, here in Arizona, tenants don't have any rights so they're like I can't sugarcoat this honestly there's an yeah I'm I'm shocked at how fast the process happens here by the way there's something called the Arizona Tenant Landlord Act Yvette that really literally says that landlords can do anything they want they can kick you out they don't have to give a reason as long as they give 14 days written notice right the 14 that's it yeah it's totally fast can you imagine having to Mm -hmm. find housing in, like move yourself and find a new place in two weeks no <laughs> no and it's oh god I mean so this it's this, so bad yeah I mean and this ties in people staying at shitty jobs with abusive conditions because you need that job to pay your rent mm-hmm. every month and like just really not going without one paycheck you can be out on the street 
because of how fast the eviction process happened. Totally. Maybe that that job is not even making ends meet, but like that's the difference between you right. remaining housed, right? Like mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty bad. Well, because you just said that like the rent strike happens amongst people who are living in places that are owned by the same landlords yeah. or slumlords. So then the um, tenant union would be everybody who lives under that. Okay. Under that person's properties, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. okay yes, yeah, yeah. Thanks. We got it. <laughs> it was in between the lines. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cause I, I wanted to ask, so worried about rent. What is, what is that? And how, what is yeah. it? What role does that play within HIP? So, yeah. So we're sister organizations because tenant power is is just a, a factor of um, house, housing insecurity, right? Um, which is what HIP is working to combat. Um, so worried about rent, um, basically we're a group of organizers, tenant-led organizers, and we're just working to help organize people that are interested in being, in unionizing their apartment complexes and kind of just sharing a lot of information and tools on how to do that, helping people mm-hmm. understand like what their rights are as a tenant, um, how can they make sure repairs get done by like an unresponsive landlord? Uh, should I move just because my landlord says so? And, and if if you have any of those mm-hmm. questions, the next one really should be, how can I form a tenant union? Mm-hmm. Because it really, truly is the only hope we have for getting these things taken care mm-hmm. of here in this state until we right. change that law. So do you feel like if you had had a tenant union when you were facing your eviction, things would have turned out differently? I hoped, I hoped so. Yeah. And I hoped that I Mm -hmm. would have been able to help a lot of people stay in their house, but I'm not sure just because I saw how the judicial system works and how like there's a moratorium on Mm. eviction still, you know what I mean? I was evicted last summer. So what does that mean? What do these protections that, that, people say we have actually mean is it enough to keep people in their homes yeah no it isn't it's hard to say I was I am hopeful that it would have yeah no and I hear what you're saying and I also am remembering the really critical part of language access and how Mm -hmm. particularly in Phoenix like we you know we just need to have Spanish-speaking organizers out there and prioritize that um, because that's a really critical part of this and mission of the housing initiative project yeah so basically the work we do is really just to illustrate that the city isn't doing enough any current structures we have in place through a capitalist state will never be able to um like actually bring liberation for our people which means housing like safe safe homes that people can can enjoy and come back to yeah so rather than typical nonprofits or the city that adds strings to whatever shelter or aid they offer we're just kind of like a, a team of organizers that works alongside unhoused people tenants people that are facing housing insecurity to creatively come up with solutions to house them really mm. just kind of mutual aid at the scale of housing 
we're kind of looking at anti-camping ordinances and these ridiculous easement and sidewalk mm. policy ordinances, working mm. really hard mm. to get mm. automatic disqualification off of people's, like when you um, apply to live at a complex, usually if you have a felony or were for- formerly incarcerated, it's an automatic deferral, mm. um, which mm-hmm. really stinks because mm-hmm. that's money people don't can't get back. And it's truly robbery. Like it's really hard. Wait, what do you mean by that? People who have uh, who have been formally incarcerated usually have a really well. They have a yeah. really hard time securing housing because of background checks that happen. Yeah, and it'll be oftentimes be an automatic mm-hmm, d- mm-hmm. disqualification when they apply for housing. If they apply yeah, for housing, but they aid. will not get those yeah. fees back, which sometimes are really expensive. Oh, because you have to pay to yeah, apply. Yeah, like sometimes almost a hundred and fifty dollars. Oh that is like a robbery. Yeah. Because that's a collateral consequence that people aren't informed about. And mm-hmm. so when they should be, I mean, if that's going to, if that's going to be the consequence that people should at the very least be informed of it. So they don't pay an application fee that is like yeah. said, quite expensive. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's very, very upsetting. So I, there's a lot of kind of, you know, trendy things happening in the Phoenix area right now around affordable housing. I don't know how I feel yeah. about some of them. So for example, you know, have you heard about the tiny houses in Tempe? Yes. What What are your thoughts on I, that? I'm just going to tell you how I don't, how I feel. I yeah. Tell me I think that that's not housing. Okay. I think that that creates tiny slums. Mm. That's just another right. like right. acute way to to display like, oh, look what we're doing. Like specifically Mm -hmm. in Tempe, they're also talking about moving the Coyote Stadium from Glendale. There's money to do that, but there's not money to Mm. build up homes for people. Like it's it's just, it's not housing. It's, it's a, it's a marketing tool for all of our city council members to say, oh, look what I'm doing. Look how I'm helping. It's not really like, that's not a house. Yeah, exactly. And it's, this is, I think, where it's important to talk about quality of life because, mm-hmm. so, well, I guess I should apologize to the Arizonans because I am a part of that group of oh. Californians that moved to Arizona and is like bringing prices I up. am too. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's not okay, <laughs> but so I was coming from the Bay Area and in like Oakland, it was like getting very bleak as well. And there were these housing units that were literally train car, uh, train car units. Yeah. Those like shipping containers, trailers, yeah. shipping okay. containers. Yes, yes, yes. Like they were trying to make it trendy, you know, like, oh, come be a techie and like live. And, and it's just like you're it. It just reminded me of like, sorry to bother you. That movie. I don't know if you saw that movie where like, yeah. you know, it gets to a point where like we're all like everyone's just like living in a like adults are just living dorm style like <laughs> And, you know, yeah, it's just like when these trendy duplexes like become turned into Airbnbs and yeah, what's what becomes the tipping point of gentrification, right? Like if that's the cool place to to be. That's what's shocking about it is that it's not like the people who are moving. I feel like those places are like not necessarily marketed to or intended for people who are going to be displaced like the poor black and brown people that are going to be displaced that is for the people who are doing the displacing and that's why it's shocking because it's like you make so much money like how are you okay with living in a shipping container Mm -hmm. because it's cool because they put like an (laughs) a-frame like roof on it and then like a full big wall of windows (laughs) or something but yeah it isn't 
It isn't. What is it though? If you had to describe like the current campaign or the current work of hip, what would you say is the focus right now? Right now, it's kind of just encouraging organizers to learn their rights and share knowledge and resources within their community. We've been kind of working on it alongside Mass Liberation AZ's Poppy People Over Property Initiative on a really cool displacement report. Mm. That's like as this light rail is being built and going through the million dollar block and is going to displace really vulnerable Mm -hmm. renters to create this like mixed use housing that's going to be trendy and cool along the light rail. Like where will they go and and what what is their story? Because it's so often left out of these city council meetings. Yeah. So just prioritizing people over property, like housing should center the needs of our community, not developers, landlords, and definitely not property owners, just kind of working to, yeah, yeah. I guess while our elected officials willfully ignore the steady rise in evictions, right, the absence of affordable housing, and the persistent gentrification of the Phoenix metro area. Right. Honestly, the tiny houses, they kind of remind me of like, the tenements in New York at the turn of the 20th century. I'm sure those mm-hmm. looked okay when they first built them too, but but right. they're so small that they're they can really effectively only house like one person. But that but you know, given how our economy works, that's not you know, it's either like right. you're either going to be incredibly privileged and living in that space alone, or what's more likely is that it's going to be a small space shared by too many people. And that that sounds like tenements to me. Like too many people without regular access to, yeah, without regular access right. to bathrooms and showers, without a place to cook their meals. Like they're just bunk. That's all it is. Right. It's it's nothing to to get excited about. And then also I've been looking to other states and other groups that are doing this work. And Food Not Bombs Las Vegas actually worked to really create like a really awesome community space out of tiny homes. And it was really cool. Like the community built it, not the city and Mm. was able to move people in. And like, they understood it was semi-permanent. Right. But the city actually Mm -hmm. just bulldozed it all to the ground, which is really traumatic because this was a project that was meant to like relieve the housing insecurity for some people the unhoused they moved their stuff in Mm -hmm. and then the bulldozers came and just destroyed it because they wasn't permitted and it's just like we can't do that here in Arizona (sighs) like we will literally get shot for trespassing on site it's just it's so different here what we're actually able to do just you I know you know the violence that we'll be met with well I think I think it's just good to unpack it because this is a particular place yeah. And I do talk about it a lot, but I think it is sometimes important just to really spell it out. So what, what wasn't permitted? In Las Vegas, this little like community area, that this town that they had built for unsheltered people to be, it wasn't quite like, as like the zone here in Phoenix. It was oh, I see. truly like mm-hmm. a community organized oh, right, little right, neighborhood right. with access to resources and, and like harm reduction and yeah. showers and mm-hmm. meals and like a kitchen. And because the city was mm-hmm. like, no, you, you just can't create this. We're going to come in and destroy it, which is what happens here in Phoenix every day or wow. not every day, every Wednesday mm-hmm. um, in the zone with the sweeps that happen. And actually, one of the reasons why the DOJ is right. also investigating 
whether our unsheltered neighbors' Fourth Amendment rights of um, unwarranted and um, search and seizure, if their rights were being uh, violated through these sweeps. And it's just like, hmm, do you think? And it's because of testimonials that unsheltered neighbors are able to give at city council meetings. And then that becomes public record. But that's the only reason that that's getting attention. And yeah, it's, it's we're up against a lot here. And you mentioned this at the beginning, but I wanted to kind of get more numbers or like a, just a better picture of how COVID has impacted evictions and housing in Phoenix and then kind of in Arizona more broadly, because you have talked about how this isn't just a Phoenix issue. This is actually um, an issue all across the state. Yeah, it really is. HIP is partnered with an organization out of Flagstaff called Flagstats. That is the data-driven team. And they did a report on the looming housing eviction crisis, which was really, really incredible. That illustrated like how COVID-19 is basically just further compounding the effects of people that are already dealing with housing insecurity, right? Like houselessness is already an issue. Rising Mm -hmm. rents are already an issue. Lack of available units, lack of affordable housing. These are all issues that existed before COVID-19. And because of the pandemic and the hardships that it brought and, you know, people who suddenly, like myself, were facing housing insecurity for the first time in their lives had to deal with. So we just get put on on top of all these people that are already facing these really insurmountable odds. And it's, yeah, it's just going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is really important to talk about the unhoused and how they're criminalized. The, you were mentioning Phoenix and the sweeps in the zone. And mm-hmm. that was something that I regularly saw in the Bay Area as well, where, you know, there was just when the, the mission, the historic Latinx neighborhood of San Francisco was being gentrified, both of the bars, the, the like public subway stations um, in that area were totally gentrified the surrounding neighborhood was totally gentrified and you know displaced a ton of people and folks you know would congregate around the BART stations but every few weeks Mm -hmm. you know you would come up from the Mm -hmm. escalator and it'd be totally empty like eerily empty and you know these are like that at that point it's like you know rich people valuing aesthetic and their own comfort over, you know, like just other people living their lives, you know, in in the best way they can. Yeah. We're seeing that also in Venice Beach right now. Like, I, I don't know, I'm originally from LA and like, Venice has always been home to the weirdos, the outcasts, the, yeah. like it was, it's the smelly like place of LA. Like it's not, it wasn't always trendy. And now LASD is sitting on along Venice boardwalk with AR-15s, like criminalizing <laughs> our unsheltered neighbors and right. traumatizing everybody. Like where do the displaced go when, right. when gentrification happens? And like, we, we have to really just shift our narrative about our unsheltered neighbors and begin thinking yes. about them as just that our neighbors, they lived in this neighborhood before they lost their housing and they're, you know, they're people to, to think that they need to work harder uh, for what they have is just so right. classist. And we just need to name it. We live in capitalism. So like, it's not our fault 
but uh, we have to do better and yeah. shift back to community and collective care. And even if it's just saying, mm-hmm. hi, how are you? Do you need anything? I'm, right. I'm Ronnie. What's your name? How's your day going? Mm-hmm. And just offering a meal, a, a water, even if it, you can and feel comfortable, a place to come mm-hmm. in and shower if you, if you're, you know, if you're able to do that, because we are all we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Especially in Arizona. Yes. Yes. The heat yeah. is getting so bad. We really, truly have to look out for each other. Yeah, definitely. And I just think it's so important. Like the desert is, you know, provides such unlivable conditions that mutual aid has actually always historically been a part of living here. Yeah. And mutual yeah. aid is not a trendy new thing. This is historically no. what indigenous and black yes. and brown communities have always done um, and mm-hmm. have participated in. Like that yeah. saying, it takes a village, like that literally, where do you think that came from? That's our indigenous <laughs> roots. Like right. it wasn't all put on individual people to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And like the American right. dream thrives off of individualism and being able to do it all yourself and achieve mm-hmm. these white man levels of success. And it's just not possible. Not in this economy. No. Um not after COVID-19. Right, right. And well, and how it's been mismanaged and how it continues. And there's just no cheating. It. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't even know how long we're going to be living with this. And, and then that's, and then that's like another issue for the unhoused community as well, because they're most vulnerable to contracting COVID having, you know, limited supplies for hygiene yeah. and like not having control over their, you know, proximate space. And totally. Yeah. 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 Like last summer when we had those shelter in place curfews, it was just like, okay, mm-hmm. where, where are they supposed to go? And like, can't hang out in parks because parks are closed because of COVID. And it was just like, truly like, where are they supposed to shelter in place when the CDC's right. advice is to wash your hands? Like, okay. But right. city of Phoenix right. is going to close all the public bathrooms. Okay. Right. Yeah. It was, right. it's wild almost like who don't they care yeah. about I know and just yeah. also like the police contact and the arrests and like the unnecessary like totally. you know, keeping people in arbitrary for arbitrary amounts of time in in jail and then like putting them back out on the street and like as a cyclical thing every, every point of contact yeah. is another opportunity for COVID spread particularly because wearing masks has somehow become politicized and Tucson PD are not wearing PPD when they're arresting people and they have not been ever since this pandemic started. Yeah. Phoenix PD I mean, neither. Kind of the least of their worries, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> Hanging out in groups. Yeah. <laughs> My gosh, don't yeah. get me started. That's another conversation. I'll come back for a different thing on the DOJ. Yeah, yeah. Whew. Yeah, so the Department of Justice is doing an investigation of the Phoenix Police Department over their excessive use of force and um, I think how they treat people with mental health issues in particular. Mm-hmm. very bad yes it's very bad think, yeah it's like they don't really need to do it because they could just ask me now to say very bad <laughs> in a summary very bad charging yeah. people with classic felonies for using their right to demonstrate and gather in public spaces cool 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 right. cool yes calling people gang yes. members and charging yes. them with yes de- yes yeah. deep stuff hmm 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 that's another yeah no that, that <laughs> different is one conversation. different episode <laughs> <laughs> so the last question that I had was 
what needs to happen in order for affordable housing to become a reality for everybody in Phoenix and then in Arizona more broadly? Yeah, basically to say there isn't a housing crisis, right? There's a system of keeping houses empty and people unhoused. Um, And there's a system of getting white people to tie up wealth in housing to align their interests with landlords. There's a system of stealing houses from black people when they try to own on their own. The the housing crisis. Yes. Yeah. Or like selling them houses that are like, you know, overpriced Mm -hmm. for what they actually are worth in the market. The housing Mm -hmm. crisis. Yes. Talking about 2008. Still relevant though. But, and the eternally high rent, it's just, it's never going away under capitalism. It can't, right? Like it, Mm -hmm. it thrives Mm -hmm. on it. It's fundamentally important to keeping us working without saving. It's just, it's one of the main financial Mm -hmm. levers of both systemic and personal racism and capitalism crumbles without it. So like we, we talk about this cycle of housing violence, right? Like, like you said, it's harder for people to get on their feet. They have been formerly incarcerated or have an eviction on their record or were formerly unhoused. Like securing housing, usually it's not the best housing and then probably getting pushed out of that housing. And it's cyclical, truly. And it's just these, like all of these um, luxury apartments Kate Gallegos has a housing plan that basically uh, aims to build 50,000 new units of housing by 2030. It's bullshit. Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, sorry, Mm. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but. No, yeah, you can swear. I swear a lot. It is bullshit. It is absolute (laughs) bullshit. The number one, so she has like these eight steps and the number one step is literally, it's like something along the lines of prioritize new building in areas of interest like just say gentrify Kate just say gentrify (laughs) like all of these units or apartment complexes that you see well in Tempe being built up along the Salt River on Tempe Town Lake with studio apartments starting at $1,800 like these will (gasps) all be counted in towards these 50,000 new units you know what I mean like yeah there's not going to be affordable housing factor and all these trendy nice luxury high rises going up in downtown phoenix like these thousand units will be counted towards these 50,000 new units that she's building and it's just it's going to take people opposing like working to stop developers and say like no you can't build this here. It's going to take people showing up to like village planning committee meetings and saying, uh-uh, you're going to listen to what the Thano Autumn people, what they, how they feel about this. No one's even asking about whose land we're on and like your rights mm. to build like little starting there. You know what I mean? Um, just really switching up that mm-hmm. narrative of who, who has a say, because it's always, always the property mm-hmm. owners. It's never the tenants. It's never community yeah yeah yeah, exactly exactly especially here in Arizona like Ducey's loves to brag about you know how all this great development we're doing and um, low tax rates but like all of this building we're doing also requires like concrete requires water there's just no way around it and like Mm. thousands Mm -hmm. of gallons of water are used to mix concrete and like I mean, it's been raining a lot, but we hadn't seen a monsoon season for two years. And like the Colorado, yeah. thank God, seriously, and like the Colorado Summer. River was yeah. just declared a shortage. Mm-hmm. Like 
We need mm-hmm. to save our water. Yeah, so that means Arizona's yeah. going to face shortages. And, it, and imagine where... Yeah, because that's an Arizona water source. Yeah, imagine who will not uh, see that. All the all the right. golf courses in Scottsdale, they will not see any <laughs> shortages. Their lawns will remain lushly green all throughout our harsh summers, um, while our poor residents in South Phoenix and South Tucson um, will mm-hmm. probably have their access to water privatized like actually yeah restricted. and restricted yeah. totally and it's just going to be able who can afford water so like that's also a part of housing in a in a way yes yes it's yes. so interconnected yeah because it, it, that's what i'm saying it's about quality of life yeah absolutely because, and who yeah. is it accessible to right exactly and slumlords in an instance where somebody can't pay rent slumlords a lot of times won't evict people right straight away. But what they'll do is that they'll use the fact that people haven't paid rent right. as kind of a threat against the tenant exercising their rights to like a habitable place. Because even, you know, you always have Absolutely. a right, uh, I mean, allegedly, like <laughs> you have yeah. a right to a habitable place as in like, you need to have running water. <laughs> right working air conditioning in Arizona. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Appliances that work. Yeah. And like you're saying, another really common thing to do is when tenants or people make these requests for repairs, what they'll do is they'll say, I have to raise the rent now. And like, there's a big difference between a $920 rent and a $1,300 rent, just because the landlord had to buy a washer and dryer. Like it shouldn't be on the tenants to And if they can't pay, they'll say too bad, like move out. And it's really, truly just like people need to have working appliances and, and, and repairs made regularly. That's part of the benefits of not exactly a homeowner is that you have, right. Yes. You give X amount of your income every month. You just give it to them Mm -hmm. for maintenance (laughs) and like part of the deal, they have responsibility, you know, for in exchange for them having ultimate ownership over the property is that they make it, they keep it habitable for you. Mm-hmm. I ideally. <laughs> yeah. And I do, I do get sour about it because I like landlords just all, even if you have an okay landlord as a human, like somehow they still always try and do the mm-hmm. least. It's no, it's true though, because they're just like in the business of having someone under them right and like usually pays their rent or pays their income to an extent yeah and it's like dude I'm not your income source like yeah but that but it is but I am but that's the way they live their life because they have all these truly multiple income properties and have just made their living on other people working for them yeah other people needing shelter as a as a fact of life yeah yeah yep Mm mm-hmm Yes. And then using it against them when it doesn't go their way. Right, right, right. Which right. makes no sense. And the, I know the self-pitying landlords, oh my God, I I just have no patience for it. There's like not every landlord owns multiple properties. You know, some of us are humble and only have only own two. <laughs> like, you know, the one that I live in and then this other one that I rent out. And like I do my best to only rent out market rate. And I, it's, I rent to people of color. And it's like, uh, we're not gonna feel sorry for you right now. Like we all have to get a job. Like maybe you should get a job too. Like yeah, all throughout last summer, we only own two income properties. Okay, stop it. Right, exactly. But now, <laughs> no, 
you get none of my pity. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking about these really critical issues. Housing remains an issue despite the fact that the federal eviction moratorium was allegedly technically extended. And so I just really appreciate you coming and talking about like the differences between our rights on paper and then how they actually play out in real life. It's super important. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. I had a great time. Excited was yeah, absolutely me- the word. <laughs> Oh, I had a great time too. And I hope we can be in person, you know, when the pandemic gets less intense. Yeah, I'm going to keep crossing my fingers and do my stay masked and do my best. Yeah, same. Okay, well, thank you so much, Ronnie. Hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Thank you. Bye.